Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself. Learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey, friends, welcome to this episode of the Relevate Podcast. We've all got to, to rise up and start making sure that we're a champion for the brokenhearted. And if we're not, we're going to start losing a generation to, to some of these issues. That is Judge Katherine Schrader, and she is here today to share from her unique perspective as a judge, an attorney, and someone who has fought herself to overcome a number of challenges. Judge Catherine Schrader, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Well, thank you, Rena. Thank you for so much for having me. I appreciate all the good work you're doing to keep everybody motivated and encouraged, not just during the COVID crisis, but even before then. Oh. You're doing some good work. Well, I thank you so much. When Corona hit, I was just like gut punched and really upset. But then I thought, heck, you know, it's an opportunity. Like, like any time, any type of crisis, it's always an opportunity, right? So I think we're learning new things. We're getting better. We're recalibrating as a society. So, um, you know, my heart obviously goes out to the people who are sick or who have died. But hopefully, we'll come out of this better or stronger. So, thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Okay. So in a previous conversation, I asked you, I said, if you had one word to describe yourself, what would that be? And tell me your word, Kathy. Well, I think that I I chose the word overcomer. You did. um, Because life is not a bed of roses. We all have struggles and we all have challenges. And your attitude towards those challenges and towards those struggles really determines your outcome. And you can choose to be an overcomer Mm -hmm. or you can choose to be overcome. (laughs) And um, so uh, when I was really young, um, I had a lot of my family and friends just pour into me about not being defeated. You don't have to let this defeat you. You don't have to let that defeat you. And so I've always looked at, like you just said, challenges as an opportunity to either grow, expand, learn, Mm -hmm. um, and and try to look for the positive in any negative. And I think as a result of that, that's why I've just become such an overcomer. Yeah, I love that. So you talked a little bit about your face and you were a forceps baby. So it just impacted that nerve. And so that has been your thing that, and I'm sure you were probably bullied when you were a kid. Yes. And and that's one of the things, uh, one of the strategies 
that through my family's encouragement and uh, learning strategies on how to deflect the bullying mm -hmm. and not let it land on me and yeah. stick to me mm -hmm. like negative things can. And crush um, you, which we, you can. Uh, my uh, family just really helped me with the ability to, A, accept that this is who I am and yeah. I can't change that. Just like anything, if you if if you can reach a level of acceptance of your situation, doesn't mean that you can't improve it. But with a physical defect like I have, I can't change it. But what I can do is accept it and either uh, accept the people who can accept me for who I am, or establish strong boundaries with the people who can't. And I think I shared with you, you know, back in the day when I was younger, we didn't have some of the sensitivity training towards disabilities and ADA protocols mm -hmm. and things like that. I mean, it was a free for all yeah. as far as differences and differences weren't ex as accepted or tolerated or appreciated. So I went through a period of time when I was very young in my teens until I, you know, until you grow in, really grow into yourself sure. where people would bully me and they would make fun of me and uh, challenge me. You know, why do you have a crooked smile, crooked mouth, things like that. And I know that the level of bullying that I experienced was probably minimal compared to what other people have struggled with, but it, it just taught me how to really be more sensitive to others' struggles. And I think right. that that has served me yeah. well totally. in, um, my, in my profession. And now, you know, as a lawyer, now on the judge, because mm -hmm. I have, a, I just have, I think, a higher sensitivity to people that really just struggle with life's challenges. And that's how people find themselves in a courtroom. Yeah. I mean, people, people don't wake up in one morning and say, Hey, I think I want to be a participant in the justice system. <laughs> no. People are in the, people yeah. are in the justice system because they're at a bad place in their life. I used to, when I would, uh, was practicing law to encourage people that found, found themselves in my office, I, I would let them know that bad things happen to good people. Yeah. And good people can find themselves in bad places. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're there because you haven't done anything wrong, but someone else has done something wrong to you. Right. And uh, so through, I think, my life experiences, I was able to really boost and support them and kind of give them a vision on how to and strategy on how to navigate the dark waters of the justice system. Yes. And because it's this, it's really the same application. The justice system impacts people in the same way, really, that COVID-19 has impacted people. Mm -hmm. It's a sudden challenge right. at all angles. Right. The justice, if you get caught up in the justice system through a divorce, business dispute, a criminal action, you've been victimized by a crime. It doesn't matter how you find yourself in the justice system. But you are impacted emotionally, physically, financially, your family, and it has the ripple effects out towards your family. Yes. So that is just one of the things that as we entered the, this sort of COVID coronavirus environment, mm -hmm. I started seeing a downward spiral in some of the posts of my friends on Facebook, Twitter, and I, I thought, you know what? Maybe no one has ever taught them that you can handle this kind of thing. 
And there, you know, those of us who've had the benefit of good parenting or good teaching or good mentoring, and, and we've been taught good life skills, find it really hard to believe that there are people in our community that have not had that. Right. There are there are people in our community that have not had a parent at home to put them in, in bed. Mm-hmm. They're working two or three jobs and 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 they're having to parent, parent themselves and they learn bad habits that sometimes they can't shake. I've had people in my courtroom, Rena, you're going to find this hard to believe, but I've had people in my courtroom before that I'm sentencing that don't even realize how important a schedule is. They don't they don't know how to balance their bank account. They don't even have a bank account. I mean, it's just, you know, basic life skills. And so I, I started, I don't know if you uh, have been following anything on my Facebook page, but I just Mm -hmm. started these little snippets on, you can do this. You you know, you're in control. You do have the power Mm -hmm. to come out of coronavirus and all of the chaos that it has dumped on your life, healthier, stronger, more productive, more positive, more forward thinking, if you are intentional about implementing strategies in your life. So, you know, I just think it's really important for for us to keep generating some positive motivation for people who might not have those skills or may not have ever been taught those skills. And I just really believe that that's part of, um, especially as a person of faith, that that's part of our sort of requirement and objective is that if you're living something that is working and it's making a difference that you need to share that wisdom you need to pour out that wisdom on all your friends on all your family on the younger generation and so that's sort of you know what I've tried to do in everything that I've approached Uh, I love that and I love the fact that you really are an advocate for the brokenhearted or those who suffer with substance abuse or mental illness, um, you are a fighter for them. Judge, how did you how did you kind of um, find your way to to being that voice for those who are hurting? Well, again, as a uh, practitioner, I handled a lot of family law disputes, and I noticed that most of the family law disputes involve those very issues of substance abuse and mental health disorders. Sure. Uh, one party or another had been a co- become addicted to a substance, spent all the money, mm-hmm. and the family found, found themselves in chaos. And as you know, it is very difficult to maintain your own sanity when you're trying to navigate life with a partner or a child or anybody that is struggling with these illnesses and these illnesses have gone unaddressed. And usually when that happens in the family law situation, there's a divorce or there's a custody battle. And so I just knew right away that within probably two or three years of practicing law, the impact that these diseases were having on relationships. Well, When I became a traffic court judge, it's a municipal court judge here in Gwinnett County and presiding over traffic court, which is really, you know, the gateway to the justice system in the criminal justice system. There were a lot of teenagers who were there for uh, possession of marijuana, DUI, 
you know, under the uh, pos- uh, possession of other substances, alcohol, minor possession of alcohol, being at a party, public drunk, all of that. And I was like, this is really starting early. Yes. And, and so. So Judge, let, st- me st- let me stop you right there. Cause you, cause you said something, I was not aware of this. So in traffic court, what did you say? That's usually kind of the precursor of what may come. What I recognize there is it's a gateway. Okay. Uh, it's a it's the gateway of sort of an early uh, a possibility of early intervention mm-hmm. for kids who are starting to act out. Okay, and it's a op- great know. opportunity for the judges and for the people that are involved in in that system to really give the kids a wake up call right. that your actions have consequences. You can't you know, party like you see on TV and be healthy and not get into trouble and things like that. So when I say gateway, it's kind of like, you know, it's the first step usually that kids and some adults have in in the justice system. And so I I just saw that, and this was 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. I saw that kids were driving extraordinarily fast. There was a lot of like 16, 17 year old fatalities that they were involved in accidents because they were just so reckless with the vehicle. They were driving fast. And now, you know, studies were showing that all the gaming at that time mm-hmm. was desynthesizing the youth towards speed and danger. So they didn't have that mm-hmm. sort of fear factor that we had when we started driving sure. because they had been gaming with vehicles driving fast and, you know, whipping around and, and all of that. Well, they, you know, youth, the, the studies show that, that a human brain is not fully formed until it's 25 years old. So uh, you put an 18, 19 year old young man into a car that has been used to um, all these games and going fast on, on the screen. But when you crash and burn, you have a do over. Yeah. Well, that's the same mentality. Recipe for disaster that. for sure. And they can't process that there's no do over. See, the fantasy of the game had become becomes their reality. And they couldn't they weren't making the distinction between fast cars on the screen and fast cars in reality and so we were seeing a lot of fatalities mm. and so the muni- municipal court judges came up with a strategy and developed team court to to try to mm. you know have a program where it was educating the kids educating the parents sort of an intervention like don't let this go any further teaching them about the dangers of alcohol on a a teenage brain, possession of marijuana, how dangerous marijuana is, that it's illegal and things like that. So that was really the first exposure as a judge that I saw just how prevalent uh, the substance abuse was in our community. But it was also how I started becoming aware how few quality, affordable, resources we had to address that. Mm-hmm. And so when I was elected in 2012 and started presiding over felonies, I became aware and saw just the trajectory of how the criminal behavior and substance abuse 
partnered in people's lives to prevent further education, to equip equip our citizens to be product, you know, productive instead of being caught up in the system. And, and, and it was really my first year, I just recognized that the way the criminal justice system had morphed into, in the state of Georgia and nationwide, was a program basically of a revolving door. I mean, mm-hmm. people were coming in and out, in and out, into the system, into jail, out, into the system, into jail, then out, because we weren't addressing the underlying right. causes. Right. So, it, you know, I before I was elected, I did a, I did a lot of work with juvenile justice reform. So I had some knowledge and awareness of best practices and what we should be doing, how we should be connecting this population to resources in the community, educational resources and things like that, therapeutic, educational, uh, really life coaching resources, Uh Uh and then uh, job skills, connecting them with felony friendly employers, things like that. So I started implementing a lot of those strategies in my courtroom. And another thing that I uh, recognized was that the intake process, no one was really asking the hard questions. Um, I had a few, what uh, the legal system terms as recidivist. And those are people who are just like chronic lawbreakers. Okay. Like we have chronic relapsers in, in the treatment world. Mm-hmm. Well, these are, are chronic um, lawbreakers, right? right? Well, it would be a chronic shoplifter. Well, as we know, shoplifting can be, chronic shoplifting can be an indicator of mental health disorders. And so nobody was saying, why do you keep shoplifting? I mean, if you you have the punitive criminal justice view that if you break a law, you're just criminally bent and you just need to go to jail, then that's what the way you operate is that, okay, uh, this is the fourth time you've shoplifted and now you're a recidivist and you need to go to jail for five years. Well, eventually this person's going to get out of jail, right? Right. While they're in jail, they are housed with other people who are well-versed in breaking the laws. Yeah. So usually when they come back out of jail, not only are they going to continue to shoplift, but they may have learned skills on how to break even worse laws or get into worse trouble or become assimilated with nefarious individuals. Right. So um, there's another model of justice, and that's restorative justice. Mm -hmm. And that's really what justice reform is all about, is how can we implement a strategy for the people in our courtrooms to restore them to being productive citizens, to restore them to make better decisions and stay out of the criminal justice system or to stay out of the civil justice Mm -hmm. system. The same thing applies for parents in conflict. There's a model to to help parents be healthy co-parenting partners for the sake of their children so that their children don't live through an acrimonious traumatic divorce, which is one of the top indicators for um, child trauma that leads into substance abuse and mental health disorders. Right. Um, and, and so the same model applies is to let's help our people create strategies to be healthier citizens so that they don't get to a level of conflict that they come back into the system. Mm. So 
So um, good. That's so how good, I've Kelly. developed uh, my uh, approach and, and the way I manage my courtroom through all the training that I had prior to being elected in 2012, all of the boards that I sat on to deal with justice reform um, issues, and then also just following Governor Deal's justice reform um, movement. I mean, he was a champion of justice reform because he saw what the uh, just, justice system in Georgia was like. He was a judge before he um, was elected to the bench. And so he saw how the restorative model is really better for the community because the uh, individuals come out of the system healthier and happier. It reduces crime. And, and, and it's like, why, why is that important? Well, reducing crime means that the citizens of Georgia are not having to pay for people to be in jail. There I mean, that's go. what taxpayers pay to house people in jail. So it's more beneficial to have someone out of jail and working rather than having them housed in the prisons and the jail. Plus, it, it reduces crime against our other citizens. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, 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 the monetary value of having someone with a restorative justice model put in place for their conflict compared to the punitive model, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't even know if you can measure it. I mean, it, it, it's just so diametrically opposed to each other. Right. And I think it takes leadership and to, to let people know that is possible. And I mean, I've seen it for myself. Recovery is possible. You know, once you're an addict, you're not always an addict. Recovery is possible. And as a society, we really need to be coming alongside these people who've had troubles like this. And like you said, a lot of it goes back to the family they were born in, poverty, you know, those situations that they had no choice, but they found themselves on this path. So I just applaud you for being a light for these people and, and trying to help them find a way out of it because no one wants to be stuck in that cycle. Nobody does. Well, and I think part of the problem we as a society have created is that until recently, we did not have the scientific evidence to conclusively establish that substance abuse and mental health are diseases. Right. They aren't a choice. And I think historically, um, that's what people thought. That's what people were taught, you know, that somebody is abusing substances because they want to. Mm -hmm. And the, the scientific models and now all the data show that originally, sure, when people start using recreationally, that is a choice. Mm -hmm. But then the brain kicks into the addictive properties and the brain is what really drives people to get their stuff or find their uh, substances. And again, if it's somebody that's 25 years and under whose brain hasn't formed mm -hmm. completely, and, and why that's important is because the frontal lobe of the brain controls impulse, helps per people control impulses. Yeah. And until it's fully formed, people have a hard time controlling their in 
impulses. That's why we, you know, teenagers do dumb stuff is because they can't control their impulses. Right. And, and uh, you hear people say, oh, you know, once my kid turned 26, he was just such a joy to be around. Well, that's because the brain is fully forming and fully maturing. Well, we've placed unreal, unrealistic expectations on our youth who are experimenting with drugs, who are using alcohol or, you know, uh, getting the, their prescription, their parents' prescription medication out of their um, medicine cabinets and things like that because their brains get triggered and in, in, in engaging the addictive properties of the brain and they can't control themselves. Right. See, we as a society haven't really done a good enough job on educating everyone on this new scientific evidence that they can't control themselves because they can't control themselves. And they're not just making bad decisions. They're not just being belligerent, but their brain is telling them, do whatever you have to do to find this. I need this. I need this to survive. You need this to survive. And so, you know, just building awareness. But again, we need to also build the resources to support everybody right. and to educate everybody and to come alongside um, on a long-term basis because, you know, some people do get addicted uh, the first time they try a substance, but usually it's a slow fade into the darkness of addiction. And by the time they get really into the pit of despair and the, and just the, the uh, being you know, wrapped up in, in, in the disease, they've alienated almost everybody that they love. Oh, Nobody yeah. can trust them anymore. Sure. They have no support system except other people who are using and who are lying and manipulating to get their drugs. And that's when the criminal behavior starts. And see, that's when people land in the courtroom because they're stealing something to trade or to, to get money so that they can go buy their substances. And so it's just this spiral yeah. that we can interrupt. I mean, the good news is that we can interrupt this cycle. And, you know, like you said, a lot of times it's generational. I mean, I've had kids in my courtroom before that have gotten trouble for smoking marijuana or drinking and driving or drinking and shoplifting and things like that. And they will disclose that they've been drinking since they were 13 years old because their parents, their grandparents, you know, would let them drink. They didn't see anything wrong with them drinking. And so, you know, it, you got it, and it takes time to shift that educationally and teach people a different skill set and a different mindset. So yeah. we've had well, our work cut out for us. Yeah, totally. And I've also heard that for a lot of people who are in that cycle of addiction, especially landing in the courtroom is the best thing that can happen for them because it hard stopped that cycle. So what happens is if people are charged with a felony, and especially right now under COVID-19, it's very difficult to get a bond hearing. They're doing a lot of teleconferencing and video conferencing to accommodate that. But that that is really a forced period of sobriety where people, are, they can't get whatever they, the substances that they've been using and they've been abusing. They go through a period of detoxification. The longer that, uh, the longer someone stays substance-free, the more clarity returns, the more their right. brain starts to heal. And mm -hmm. so uh, jail is a good thing to, to a good tool and a good resource to interrupt that cycle. 
and especially for people who have no uh, family support or have no means to get into a treatment facility or to even be able to get to, you know, one of our recovery community organizations to really see a sober coach or a peer support specialist. So, um, it yeah, is. And I, and I know that in Forsyth County in Georgia, that in the, in the coming city jail, there's people from the church, they're like recovery coaches that, that are going in to provide at least some level of service and rehab while they're there. Cause it's, it's such a good time for them to, to be working on that, you know, whatever was driving the addiction where they're yes. in jail. So, so many opportunities to help people. And I think, you know, just busting through the stigma, the more we can have conversations like this and get people, you know, people that, that haven't been through it, they just don't know that right. it's not a choice after some point and that people do terrible things when they're in addiction, but they can, they can be redeemed. We're all, we're all capable of that. I believe that too. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, I'd love to get your thoughts on the combination of COVID-19 and the courts and what might be happening at home as a result. You know, this is a historic time in all systems, not just the court system, but I mean, just in, in the community at large. And the courts are addressing with what's been labeled essential services. And that is some criminal cases, some juvenile cases, some civil cases where immediate and emergency attention is needed. And most of those are being done through video conferencing just to make sure that everybody's health is protected and because there's so many unknowns. Um, my, uh, the concern that we have as far as what's happening at home is that we humans get to a place where it, they get into survival mode and many people were already in survival mode, whether it was, I'm just, you know, tolerating their job, tolerating their spouse, tolerating their kids, kids tolerating their parents. Well, what's happening, we, we, we think, and we're concerned about is like kids that were living in a home where there may have been an abusive parent mm -hmm. and they were escaping and getting at least some peace and some emotional support through their teachers and, and friends at school have been completely isolated from that. And, right. you know, feel, feel a sense of not just the isolation that healthy you know, help people who have healthy relationships and, and healthy situations um, and a, a positive outlook feel, but they have a uh, added feeling of being trapped, being feeling hopeless, maybe possibly suffering additional emotional abuse or physical abuse. And so we've had a big concern about uh, exacerbation in the trauma level that this population normally is exposed to. And um, of course, even before coronavirus, teenage suicide was on the rise, teenage depression was on the rise. So, you know, we've been all very concerned about, at least I've been very concerned about trying to do what we can to keep kids motivated, to keep parents kind of level-headed, making sure they're aware that their thoughts, their feelings, their actions really do impact their children. Yes. on a much grander level than they may realize. And, you know, this is really a uh, vital time in our community 
to make sure that, you know, sort of we're all on our best behavior. We're all trying to be positive. We're all trying to be supportive and bring out all the good things that we have to offer rather than acting in a toxic manner. Most definitely. So before you were a judge, you were an attorney. And how many years were you an attorney, Kathy? I practiced law for 25 years before I took the uh, bench full time. Wow. So how did that shape you as a professional and a person? Well, you know, when you have walked through the stormy water, or, uh, and I guess I should say ride through, but when you have walked through the storms of litigation with a variety of people, with so many people like I did, you just see the impact that your behavior has on the individual, the family, and the community at large. But then you also see the impact that the judges have on individuals and families and the community by their decisions. You know, what happens in a courtroom has ripple effects throughout the community and throughout families for generations to come. I mean, it's not just, okay, we make a decision and we're done. What happens in that courtroom impacts people on a variety of levels, Mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally, practically, financially, just a whole, you know, just on several different levels. And uh, I practiced in, in all the metro Atlanta counties and judges are people. And there are, uh, you know, it's kind of like doctors. Some doctors have a better bedside manner than others. Well, it's the same thing with judges. Sure. Uh, yeah, some judges have a higher awareness of how their words and their decisions really impact the community at large. Not just, you know, let's get let, let's get an order out and let's close this file. Um, so, you know, I, I just have tried to be the judge that listened made sure that I was making the best decision with the information that I was given and knowing that the decisions that I make would have far reaching impact on everybody involved. Yes, definitely. Very, very true. So how do you stay true to yourself in the world of politics? My faith. The easy answer to that is my faith. I have devotion time every morning. I, my boss is the Lord. I serve the Lord and then I serve justice. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the constitution and all the rights and privileges that that affords me as an individual, but also as a leader and, and also for my community. And I see politics as, you know, an opportunity for bad people to be even worse, but it's also an opportunity for good people to be even better. Courageous leadership inspires people to want to be better. And so that's what I've always tried to do. When I was president of the Bar Association way back in the day, it was all about let's let's be better. Let's have better policies. Let's have better procedures. And it's the same thing for me on the bench. Let's adapt all the best policies. Let's let's see what the, the current new data is. Let, mm-hmm. Let's make sure that we are serving well. I just think that if you're not moving forward and you're not growing and you're not trying to, to become a better person individually, yeah. then you're falling back. And I don't want to be that person. I want to be somebody that inspires others to to make a better impact on their lives, to make a better impact on the community. And because when that happens, we're all happier. We all feel safer. 
we all feel more secure in the community. And I just think that that's what leadership is all about. Yeah. And we should all be a work in progress our whole lives. We should all be striving to get better, stronger. Well, give more, all that, all that. That's right. Uh, that's right. And, and I think that having been a student of the Bible and just, uh, you know, a woman of faith, I just know that the person I have to answer to is the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just don't want to be seen as somebody that's hypocritical when I go to church on Sundays. Mm-hmm. But then, oh, she's completely different Monday when she's at work. I don't, I don't want to be yeah, that person. No, I didn't want to be that person as a that's lawyer, not. and I didn't want to yeah. be that person as a young woman. And I just think that when you're true to your faith, it's just easier to say true to yourself. And, you know, I am a student of the truth. I rest on the truth. The truth is what it is. You can't change it. And it's just the same thing as when I was growing up. Uh, My smile is what it is. And I, you know, I I can only make the best of it. It's you. It is you, Miss Kathy. So I've heard you describe the courtroom as a battlefield. As a judge, what is the strategy and tone you set in your courtroom and why? The courtroom is a battlefield and we've got two parties fighting it out and they're fighting for the same thing. They just don't realize it in a civil case. They're fighting for a future, a healthy future. The judge is really there to make a decision based on the best interest of a family, applying the law and making sure that everybody's heard and all the facts have been shared. But also when we're in a family law situation, the court is also like the voice for the voiceless. The children usually don't have a voice. And so a judge's responsibility is also to make sure that the best interests of the children are served in making their decision. And the same thing with criminal cases. A person is considered innocent until proven guilty. And so it's the state's responsibility to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone's guilty. Well, my job is to make sure that the courtroom is managed, that the evidentiary laws and statutes are followed, that the individual that's been accused of a crime gets a fair trial, Mm -hmm. that everything is just managed professionally. It is interesting because, you know, a lot of people think that, especially in a criminal case, that the judge has all this discretion really the person that has the most discretion in a criminal justice matter is the arresting officer because the arresting officer sets sets the ball in motion in, in, in and determines whether someone comes into the criminal justice system or not mm-hmm. the law is the law and that's what my job is is to apply the law to the facts of the situation but the officer has discretion for example, if someone has overdrank and they're on the on the curb and they're passed out, that officer has the discretion to arrest them for being a public drunk and violating whatever laws that other laws there are or you know waking them up, taking them to a, a safe place to detox, taking them to um, like the zone in Marietta, yeah. um, things like that arresting or the um, officer that has indictment powers really has the discretion because the 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 law is the law my job is to uphold the constitution and and apply the the laws of the state of georgia 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, but we talked about it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And the tone you set in your courtroom, share a little bit more about that because I found that I found that really interesting. Well, yes, I again, I see my job is not just about punishing people and hold, holding them accountable or resolving their conflicts. Uh, my job is to create a strategy, an order, or a sentence so that people can start that day, if they haven't started already, learning how to be a better citizen, learning how to address the reasons they're in the courtroom in the first place, and to do that in a way that's firm but fair. You can deliver bad news to someone in a way that is not oppressive and not offensive. You can tell someone you disagree with them, and as long as you do it in a kind, compassionate way, explaining the differences and respecting the fact that they had their own position compared to just being brutally offensive and dismissive. And and so I've tried to treat everybody in the courtroom with respect and dignity, just like I would want to be treated. Um, As a lawyer, I, I, I have been in courtrooms with my clients who were disrespected and and treated in a way that was not dignified and it was kind of like it's a shock to the system when when that happens and so I try to make sure that I treat everyone with respect and dignity and even if I rule against them that they understand why uh, I let them know about the law that you know and just make people feel heard Mm -hmm. and that that is Mm -hmm. one of the things that people need when they come into the courtroom they just need the person in the robe to listen and make a decision because usually by, especially in a civil case, by the time they've gotten into the courtroom, they've gone through mediation. Their lawyers have tried to talk through the situation. So there's been other avenues of trying to resolve the conflict before people find themselves in in the courtroom uh, fighting against each other in a civil matter. And sometimes one party's too stubborn. Sometimes there's a substance abuse disorder and there's just no rationality there. And they need somebody to just make a decision for them and bring closure Mm -hmm. to the conflict. And if it's done in the right way, both parties can leave and make the adjustments to their life in a healthy way and and move on. And that's what a lot of people really need psychologically. Start to, to get on with it. Okay, so let's kind of do a speed round here. And um, I'm gonna present some words to you. And if you can just share more about your insight and knowledge as perspective you've had from being on the bench from these issues. Okay, substance abuse. Prevalent, prevalent every, I, I would say almost every case in the courtroom has a thread of substance abuse and mental health disorder to it. Mm. Almost everyone. Mental health. Same thing. And I've noticed an uptick in mental health disorders, especially in our youth and uh, our um, 20-year-olds, early 30s. I mean, I've seen an uptick in that. Mm. And I know that there's probably data out there to support that. But, and I'm not sure if it's just from traumatic childhood uh, early substance abuse. Um, I'm not sure. Well, for both, both of those issues, 
the courtroom and jail is not the place where those people need to be. They need right. to be somewhere else getting help. Divorce. I think, you know, our culture has embraced divorce and there's a right way to get divorced and there's a wrong way to get divorced. And I, you know, I would counsel people when I was practicing law that just because you, if, if, if there's a child involved in a marriage, just because you get divorced doesn't mean you're no longer a family. You've just become a divorced family unit. And right. if you can maintain the perspective that you will, that, that your soon to be ex-spouse, the other parent of your child is always going to be part of your family because they're part of your child. Right. You can navigate the, the waters of divorce and especially custody issues in such a much healthier way where your child will, will progress through life feeling supported and loved by both of you. Mm -hmm. When a child feels tugged in the middle between two parents, Not they good. they have no peace and they have a lot of anxiety. And that, frankly, is what drives a lot of our children of divorce mm -hmm. into self-medicating right. or other self-destructive behaviors. And I see that come out in the long range with the substance abuse being captured into the criminal justice system. Yes. So. Yes. And I mean, sometimes marriage is not going to work, but for right. the sake of God, if there are kids involved, be acrimonious, find a way to resolve it as peacefully as you can. So you can move on because right. those kids pay such, such a price. It really is heartbreaking. Bullying. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Uh, again, bullying really reached a crisis level a few years ago. I think that now uh, educators and therapists and parents rose to the level to start addressing that. Um, there was such an uptick on social media bullying and that really was uh, adding to the um, increased level of uh, youth hopelessness and suicide and depression. But I think that there's been some public policy outreaches and, and I think that it, it's just like building awareness for, for substance abuse and mental health disorders. If we all do our part to address some of these negative impacts that life continues to throw at us, we can make a positive difference. But it does take leadership. I mean, it, it, you know, and the courage to change the status quo is something I think that has slowly been whittled away in, in, in our community. It's just, we, you know, we've, got, we've all got to, to rise up and start making sure that we're a champion for the brokenhearted. And if we're not, we're going to start losing a generation to, to some of these issues. Yeah. Well, and I was lucky to have good parents. And I remember my mom saying, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. And I am just amazed at social media and how people think they just have a free-for-all to blast people <laughs> Whether they know them or they don't know them, I right. mean, that it's, it's definitely a form of bullying. And it's like, people just hit pause, you know? It's like, do you really need to make that nasty comment? What good is going to come from that? Nothing. I agree. Move well, I on. agree. And, and, and I've seen also a uh, level of just complete disregard for truth. It just seems like more of our society in embraces whatever truth is good for them that day rather than absolute truth 
Um, I was raised and I believe the truth is the truth. Facts are the facts. And if you don't tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then you're not really truthful. Um, And I just, you know, have a concern of seeing the escalation in our communities about people who think it's okay to just tell 10% of a situation and act like they're telling the truth. And, uh, you know, you see, of course, in politics a lot, but you also see it in many other areas. And uh, I just am concerned about, you know, how that is being accepted. And I think it is unacceptable. Like you, I just think that we all need to be truthful because that's how we make the best decisions for future steps or future policies. Yeah, most definitely. And sometimes the truth hurts. But when you set that as your foundation and don't accept anything else, um, collectively as a society, if we can get back to uh, to more of that, I mean, we're just going to be so much better because if, if your foundation is not truth, it's like, you know, right. you go down. Totally yes. believe that. So you've recently been through the legal system, this time as a defendant that resulted in a mistrial. Yes, ma'am. I know we don't really have time to get into the details of this, but I know you and there is a hope side to your story, if you can please share. Well, Uh, You know, like I shared before, I'm a woman of faith. I don't think God makes any mistakes. I don't think there's, you know, like, oh, a coincidence or there's a reason that all of this has happened. Mm -hmm. I have learned a lot about now um, how uh, people who are charged with crimes or accused or indicted feel. You know, it's one thing. And and I I just think that it, it, it serves me well because Now I understand why people may agree to accept a plea in a criminal matter just to just to get it over with Mm -hmm. uh, and proclaim their innocence on one hand. Then just I just want to get it over with. Well, uh, especially, you know, right now where my original mistrial was scheduled, retrial was scheduled for April 27th. Well, with the virus. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, the courts have been suspended. Juries have been suspended. So I'm not sure when that's going to happen. So I understand sort of the agony of the waiting that people are um, going through. I understood it on the civil case. Um, and uh, but it's, you know, it, it, a civil case where you're getting a divorce you don't really feel like your character's being attacked. You don't really feel like there's being gossip and slander spread about you in the community. There's just a whole different level of what people who are accused of crimes and want to stand on their innocence are exposed to. And so, you know, I have a deeper understanding of that. I uh, just have seen, you know, uh, what people go through. And I think that, um, also, by me saying um, I'm standing on my innocence, I'm giving other people the courage to do the same thing and to to uh, recognize that there's more to the story and to encourage people to dig deeper and find all the facts. And mm-hmm. so I just think that there's a lot of things that are coming out of this situation that will hopefully benefit the community, maybe benefit the system, benefit me 
And that's all, all a girl can ask for. There you go. So I think it's safe to say you are not a typical judge. I love the fact that you're out there, you're on Facebook Live, you're yes. having these very public conversations in, a, in an attempt to help other people. So what drives that within you? I just think that when you have received the benefit of other people encouraging you and lifting you up and supporting you when others are attacking you or trying to demean you, you just want to give that back. Mm -hmm. um, and when you, when you have experienced the difference between having a positive attitude compared to a negative attitude, you want to share that so other people can experience that. And, you know, one of the things that I um, would tell people that I mentored or coached or, you know, taught Bible study or whatever is that you can't share something unless you live it. And so when you live it, you can share it. And when you share it, people see that and they want part of that. And I think that we're, you know, as humans, we're all driven to, to, to make a difference. And we have a choice. We can make a positive difference or we can make a negative difference. Mm -hmm. And so I choose to make a positive difference. Love it. Love it. Love it. One last question for you. So the word relevate means to uplift or inspire. In closing, what words of advice do you have for my listeners as it becomes to being an overcomer? Okay. No matter what, there is no problem so big that it can't be solved yes. together. Yes. Um, if you're experiencing problems, reach out to, to your people. Um, there, uh, there's so many resources. There are so many people that love you, that want the best for you. Don't let darkness or depression or oppression convince you otherwise. Um, there's so much hope in our community now. There's so many people that are reaching out. There's so many resources. You do not have to struggle alone. Um, so that would be what I would say. Okay. Judge Catherine Schrader, you are a light and a force and an overcomer. And I'm so glad to call you my friend and just am super proud of the work you do in the community. So, well, and saying back at you, Rena, I appreciate everything that you're doing to inspire others to make a positive difference. And uh, I just think together we can really make a difference in our community. And I appreciate you sharing with me some time on your um, podcast and everything that you're doing. Awesome. Okay. Talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So I first learned of Judge Schrader when working in the field of addiction and recovery. Her reputation was that of being a friend and a fierce advocate for those who struggle with substance use disorder. I now know her personally and can vouch for her authenticity as a true defender and champion of the brokenhearted. To learn more about Kathy, visit her website, judgekathyschrader.com. Thank you so much for listening and being a subscriber of the Relevate Podcast. Your support really means so much. To learn more about me, your host, visit my website, rena-olson.com. You can also search and find me on social media, also under Rena Olson. Thank you to Judge Schrader for sharing so freely of her time, giving us a glimpse into her heart for this conversation. Let's love each other better, friends. Life is short and it's precious. Let's make it fabulous. 
I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.